Welcome to the State of Developer Education, a podcast by Major League Hacking. We explore how technical leaders are creatively tackling the developer education gap to help prepare the next generation of technologists for the real world and build businesses that can adapt to any changes in the technology ecosystem. I'm your host, John Gottfried. Welcome back to the State of Developer Education. This week's episode is with Tim Castillo, who is a developer advocate for the Dagster Project. I am so excited to have Tim here. How are you doing today? Doing great. Yeah. For the audience, this is like the first work day of like 2024. So that means like the brain is running slow, but you know, the heart is going strong. Love it. Yeah, it's January 2nd when we're recording this, which is definitely a busy day coming back to the office, but also kind of slow. We'll dive right in. I think this will be a fun, active conversation. As you probably know, if anyone's listened before, I love to start with my guests' origin stories. I like to hear where you came from, how you started, and really how you ended up where you are today. So what's your origin story, Tim? All right. I'd like to say that like I'm a product of like the tech community of the 2010s. And that like I feel like I'm a reflection of like the trending resources and like just what was going on in the community of time. So the early ages of like MOOCs and like tech meetups. So when I came into college, I didn't come in as a computer science major. I actually wanted to be like a dentist growing up. One thing led to another and I ended up like switching into computer science. And I came in with that classic imposter syndrome of just like being like so far behind of like switching into the major that like I just had that urge of like needing to fix it. So like the holiday break before like my first intro to CS class, I grinded out a bunch of classic, massively online MOOCs and online classes. Your penultimates, like Harvard CS50 online course and whatever was like casually chilling on Coursera at the time. And that gave me like a really good foundation to piggyback off of and helped instill that confidence early on. And what there were other resources like, oh, Quincy Larson's classic, like free code camp, if you're familiar with it. Yep. Yeah, that was like everyone's like foray into React for a good chunk of time. So there was that. And aside from that, I went to undergrad in SF. So I went to a whole lot of meetups. Like I would just wake up, pull up the meetup or Eventbrite app on my phone and be like, okay, where am I going to grab dinner tonight? Which meetup am I going to like crash day? And I was always way in over my head. Being an undergrad college student, you were not the target audience for these meetups. But it was always awesome being able to like chain together the computer science theory with like the problems and the things that people were thinking about and presenting at these meetups. And I always left like, pretty well fed because being a college student, everyone's just like, yeah, sure. You can have the rest of our pizza or Chipotle catering or whatever random trays we had. So that's why I'd like to think that I'm a reflection of like, the tech community from the 2010s, just from like all those different resources and like opportunities that were coming up around then. That's really cool. I, you know, it's funny. Like, I've never actually heard someone describe it that way. But I also have a very particular memory of the tech community circa 2010, because that was kind of when I started as a developer evangelist. And so like I was the one throwing a lot of those meetups, at least up in New York. And there was a definitely like a certain like vibe and sort of community feeling to it that has shifted over time. I'm curious, like you said that you weren't really the target demographic for those meetups. 
did you feel welcome? Did you feel included in them? Like, how was the tech community like place to be as a student at that time? Honestly, great. No, I never felt unwelcome. I met so many great quick mentors in passing, little 10 to 15 conversations that like were formative experiences for me that changed how I viewed and understood like where I was going and what I wanted to do. And I feel like it's like a very canonical experience for like people with computer science degrees of just like, oh, like I don't know what I'm gonna do with this. Like I feel like I'm learning a lot of theory, but I don't know how it applies to like actual software engineering, which is a very valid observation. And I was lucky to have the opportunity of talking to all these people and seeing, well, and having them share their wisdom of like, oh, that thing you just learned in that class last week, that is something that I'm applying right now in like trying to figure out how do I optimize this or how do I actually build this out? And so it was really great being like tactile and like the being there viscerally. And everyone at these meetups had such a great demeanor and approach towards education in which they wanted to, like they were generally there to help share what they're working on, to help elevate the community as a whole. Glad I got the benefit from it. Yeah, it's definitely a special thing. One of the things that I noticed that I thought was a little like atypical, even though you got a computer science degree, you had written somewhere that you really valued getting a computer science degree from a liberal arts college. Can you tell me more about that? Yeah, I went to the University of San Francisco. As I mentioned earlier, I didn't think that I was going to major in computer science. So I didn't like target going to a large STEM-focused academic institution or like the quote-unquote T1s or whatever. I take pride in going to a smaller liberal arts college where their focus wasn't necessarily research or cranking out incubators and such. And I think, I genuinely believe that I would have dropped out or flunked out or something if I didn't have like these small courses or small class sizes in the community that I had going to USF, or, like a liberal arts college in general. And just like, I feel like it made me so much more well-rounded and also gave me a community that was intimate, that was focused, and people genuinely cared about me learning and about education. I want to say a majority of my professors were either adjunct and like were working at a tech startup at the time or working at some company or were previously at some company and wanted to go back into academia. So everyone there genuinely cared about education. Everyone there generally cared about the development and the growth of the students. And I'm lucky I got the benefit of that. I mentioned, I firmly believe like if I was at a different institution, I probably would have dropped out because I don't believe I would have had the same resources I would otherwise. How have you sort of like taken that lesson and applied it to your own work as a developer advocate? I'll say it always boils down to just meeting your developers at where they're at. And it's about that individual care, that individual focus on what is their perspective? Do they need to learn? Why are they trying to learn in the first place? And really generally empathizing with who they are. Because I want to say, in comparison to like software engineering, in which there's a large gamut of people with like computer science degrees, I know so many data engineers who come from a very wide gamut and background. Because at some point, people end up working with data and there's that progression of, okay, I've automated, like, I don't like this manual process, let me automate it. And okay, I've automated it and it puts that little seedling of, 
okay, what else can I do with this? And that is how some of the greatest data engineers I know got into the field. They come from like clinical settings, healthcare, finance, ops, so on and so forth. And because of that, when it comes to like educating people and trying to get people to understand what data engineering is, the software patterns associated with it, what it means to do data engineering well, it's important to understand the baseline of where people are and meeting the individuals in the context of where they are. What does that look like? I talk to a lot of people who are, maybe they're working on an API where you can kind of assume that everyone who's using your API is a software engineer. What changes when you have these multiple different like personas of maybe data engineers, software engineers, hybrids? How does that kind of shift your strategy? So when it comes to data, it often like boils down to like the business operations and trying to do something with that data in order to improve or make better decisions for an organization. So in some aspects, it's slightly harder to teach data engineering or data platform engineering or something or analytics to this wide breadth of backgrounds. But at the same time, it also might be easier because you can focus on the business aspects by framing things as what's it take in order to get this business to do something? Or what does it take in order to like give this team within your organization the ability to make more informed decisions? Some people may not know what certain API protocols are or how certain frameworks work. But if they have the task of moving data around or transforming it or cleaning it up or training a machine learning model, it's helpful to level set into, well, what is the actual practical business use case of here? Like, okay, well, why do you need to get this marketing data in the first place? It's because you want to resolve it with your other data from like Salesforce or from your sales system or something. And you get the luxury of just being able to focus on like, well, what is the actual tangible benefit? It puts you so close to the business. Like being in data puts you so close to business. You can focus on what are the actual bits and pieces of the systems that I'm connecting and how do I frame it and how do I build data pipelines off of it and with it? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So kind of to summarize what you're saying, or at least like repeat back my understanding of it, there are software developers using something like Dagster, but there's also all of these other layers of the business that interact with it, whether it's like someone doing data operations or compliance or whatever else. And the thing that makes it easy for them all to kind of be on the same page and understand it is that the data translates back into business objectives very, very directly. Unlike something where it's like, how do you justify like a 1% increase to page load time? That's harder to measure. Obviously, it's easy to measure quantitatively, but hard to measure the business impact of something like that. Yeah, I feel like when it comes to software engineering, things often get grounded into implementation or the architecture of a system. You're able to create a ground truth into like, how does it relate to the business? Right. Which is relatable to everyone in the business. So you have this open platform. You obviously have like the commercial product as well. What exactly are the components of Dagster? Like, can you give a little high-level summary for people and explain how the ecosystem sort of fits together? Yeah. So Dagster is an open source Python framework that was created roughly around like 2018, 2019 or so. And it's focused on helping people build data pipelines by focusing on the data assets that are getting produced and chaining those together in order to 
help orchestrate those data pipelines together, whether it might be analytics, ETL, machine learning, model training, so on and so forth. So an open source framework, it's there, it's free. You're welcome to use it as much as you'd like. And then in addition to that, it's maintained by Dagster Labs, which is a company I work for. And Dagster Labs provides a cloud-deployed managed service version of Dagster called Dagster Cloud. And that comes with a handful of different features that help manage deploying and orchestrating and managing Dagster. So we have a really good manifesto written somewhere on our blog about what we're trying to do when building commercial open source with Dagster, in which you will get all the technical functionality. You will get all of the features needed to actually write data pipelines and orchestrate them in Dagster open source. And that what we're trying to solve for with Dagster Cloud is the operational and infrastructural complexity involved with it. So that might mean trying to, what it means to like host Dagster Cloud. It also means audit logs, your role-based access controls, and try to figure out what it means to scale Dagster Cloud or Dagster in an enterprise, such as being able to track and understand, well, how much does it cost to actually like train the machine learning model or build that table? So things that are like more stakeholder friendly too. Interesting. That's kind of cool. I feel like having an opinionated sort of like commercial open source manifesto is probably reassuring for people in the community. I know that like sometimes there are worries about whether or not a project will stay the same, but like given how things inevitably evolve over time, stating sort of philosophy behind it is probably a good way of like proactively communicating with people about what you're building. Yeah, it's great. I mean, that's not to say that like it's easy to decide what features to put in Dagster versus Dagster Cloud, but it communicates with transparency like what we are trying to do, yeah. what people who are signing up for open source Dagster are going to get, yep. and also communicates the value prop of what you're getting with Dagster Cloud, which is that infrastructural and operational complexity that we are trying to help with and solve for. Yeah, absolutely. So... I was doing like background research on sort of Dagster and all the different resources available. And like a lot of DevRel teams, it seemed like there were a pretty wide variety of like educational resources, right? There's docs, there's tutorials, there's sort of more progressive training programs, which I think you guys call Dagster University. There were like various videos, all sorts of different things. How do you think about like what to put in a particular format? Like, why is one thing a tutorial, another thing a university course, and another thing a one-off like video or doc? I like to think that there are never enough ways to communicate something. And there are multiple dimensions to be looking at, like what it takes to produce educational content, whether it might be long, short, medium form, video, text, code snippets, example repos, so on and so forth. And... We were talking earlier about like what it means to meet people wherever we're at. And that loops back into this, in which like I believe that like in order to meet people at where we're at, it's important to provide as many different ways to consume that knowledge, consume that resource in some shape or form. At Dagster, we take a lot of pride in our support system, in which we try to answer community open source questions and get in form of GitHub discussions. We have a vibrant Slack community who also ask questions. And we keep track and well, we keep track of all these answers and we see like which questions are coming up often. We try to record it. We have a good feedback loop of turning things into a GitHub discussion. 
turning it into docs. Okay, is it good enough just as docs? Do we need a video off of this? Do we need another example repo? Do we need to go back and flush out the GitHub discussion? What benefit do we get in text of a code snippet in a GitHub discussion versus something more robust as a, let's say, like a snippet in the docs or an entire guide in the docs? There are many different ways to like educate people on something. Everyone has different priorities and everyone is at a different point in that education or that learning process. So I think it's valuable to be able to provide multiple different ways. And we have general heuristics as to help us decide like when we introduce or when we teach something in a different format. What was an example? Like what would warrant one format over another? When it comes to stuff like the UI, Daxter is a very code first framework. A lot of things can be configured in code and such as like, let's say the like the status of a schedule, whether it's on or off, you can set its default status in code. That That's great and all that's convenient. And you can definitely like show do- like code snippets or like a little paragraph in it and be able to say like, okay, well, yeah, if you just turn this flag on here, it'll work. But it's another thing to just like fire up Loom for a good, good like three minutes and just record actually clicking through the UI, actually making those code changes, actually seeing what gets impacted, what gets changed if you try something out. Again, that's an easy example of just trying to differentiate between like, well, you can always have just have the code snippet and explain what it does or have the API reference, but then also you can invest more into, well, here's a video, here's something that interacts with like multiple different applications. So like, yeah, when you're hopping between your IDE and the UI, or when you're showing or clicking across multiple tabs, videos are much more convenient by able to show that very human, that very real context switch. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. So a lot of what you're describing here about meeting developers where they are, building different types of content where it's relevant, it sounds easy, but it's probably very difficult in practice. Are there any like frameworks that you utilize or general like guiding principles that you follow to inform that? Yeah. There's this thing called Bloom's Taxonomy, which it's like one of the first things that's taught in teaching school, which is just like when it comes to learning, there are multiple hierarchies for it or there are multiple levels to it, such as understanding it is different than applying it. And what does it mean? What comes after applying it is being able to like evaluate it or be able to create something novel with it or expanding that like scope of knowledge. And Loom's taxonomy as a framework, I use a lot in order to help me figure out, well, well, what gaps do we have? Like, do we have the different hierarchies, the different levels of Loom's taxonomy like checked off? What are we targeting for in this piece of content? Or where do we feel like people are lacking in? So for every new piece of content that we write, we try to understand what are the goals for this? Are we trying to help people understand something? Are we trying to inspire people to create something ourselves or evaluate their different options when it comes to designing a system? And so it always starts with, okay, well, what's the problem set? What are people struggling with that we've identified in our community through talking through different people, um, seeing what's happening in Slack, seeing what people are asking on Reddit or raising GitHub issues about? And then afterwards, we're like, okay, where do we feel like our general sense of community is along the like Bloom's taxonomy over here that we're getting at? And then how do we target that? Where are these weak points that we feel like we could be strengthening and we're going to be elevating the community from here? So yeah, it's to focus on to get the context and the anecdotes of individuals and then be able to create that understanding of, well, based on this sample of your individuals, like what does your community look like and how do you upscale your entire community from here? What are some things that 
have sort of surprised you about where the community wants help, right? Because I would imagine with an active community, especially an open source, people are very vocal about what they're looking for. Is there anything unexpected that people are struggling with or looking for that you all didn't see coming? Or just pieces of content that they were requesting a lot that you didn't really expect? I want to say that a good chunk of questions and something we definitely didn't expect was how many of them just come down to like software design patterns and just writing good software. So there was a point in time where I want to say like probably half the questions we were getting were something that can be solved by applying like standard like factory patterns or understanding how something gets deployed or like how something can be written and built modularly. And there are other questions just like, oh yeah, what's a Python virtual environment? Why do I need to use a virtual environment? What is a module versus a package and so on and so forth? So yeah. That was a good swath of questions. I actually completely forgot about this because we stopped getting them as much anymore. Because last year we focused on, I want to say it's like at the time of recording, 10 posts, which is focused on Python for data engineers. And it's a series of like 10 mid-level Python focused articles that's made for people who, well, know what Python is. They know the syntax. They know how to navigate it. But they need that bridge to help them become more advanced. Need that bridge in order to like take them to figure out like, okay, I know this Python. How do I bring it to production? And so in that we cover like stuff like virtual environments. Why is Python suddenly typed? None of the tutorials I learned had typed Python before. What is my Pi? What is PyLens? What is all this going on here? And then goes into like stuff like factory patterns, stuff like What's a code smell? Like, how do you profile your Python code? So yeah, these were unexpected questions that we were getting a lot of at the time. And that's an example of just like, okay, well, here's a, a common question is like, okay, well, how do we do this in Python? Like, what is the Pythonic way of doing things? Or just like, what does it mean to build good Python software? And yeah, that's an example of content that we produced to help bridge people who knew some Python, but wanted to upscale, like level up in their understanding and build something in production. That's really cool. I feel like that comes back to what we were talking about earlier, which is that there are perhaps like different personas and different levels of expertise in your community around all of these different topics. And it's not really safe to assume a certain level of background, even in like programming. Like I remember there's this sort of like apocryphal story at Twilio back when I was there about a product manager implementing Twilio as a proof of concept to their engineering team to show them that a certain thing was possible. And none of our content was designed for non-technical people or like product managers, but they were able to kind of like figure it out and brute force their way into it. And it feels like probably a lot of DevRel teams have portions of their audience that have vastly different levels of technical expertise that can benefit from like more fundamental content like this. I think... Fundamental content that like upskills your entire community is vastly underrated because being able to like invest in your community and having them generally upscale and helping foster that like that desire for education within them, that gives you strong community members who are super passionate and are willing to contribute back. We have community members in our Slack community who weren't the strongest in Python back in the day or like starting off of Dagster, like a year ago or something. And now they are the ones who are like answering questions in the morning on our Slack community 
as like their morning Sudoku. And sure. they're now answering to questions that like they were asking a year ago, which is just awesome to hear about. That's awesome. I mean, it also shows that the community is active enough where there is sort of like increasing levels of engagement as people learn more. Yeah. Something like I am still wrapping my head around and I'm just in general all of when it comes to DevRel is how much investing in your community matters and how much it pays back in huge dividends in terms of just like having a strong, passionate community who care about you and are invested in the product and its growth and the feature development. Okay, so Daxter's derailing over here. Daxter Open Source does weak releases. This one time, we had a company offsite and we forgot to tell our community that we weren't going to release that week. And on the day we typically release, I got multiple DMs from users saying, hey, are you okay? What happened to the week we release? This is what I read when I go to bed at night. And I'm just like, wow, that is an anecdote. I was not expecting people would actually care that like we missed a release for a week. Or that's like the last thing you look at at night. It's just awesome to hear about. Yeah, that's high praise. That's really, really cool. So I'm curious, like, I know that you do both meetups and a lot of virtual community building, and that it sounds like you got a lot of your personal start by going to meetups. In 2023, 2024, what do you think the balance is between virtual and in-person community building for DevRel folks? My very biased perspective is that I have learned so much and I have developed so much of my footing purely from like Slack communities and Discord servers of other people who are within my niche or like within data engineering and just bond over like what it means to like work in data. So yeah, I would say like since the pandemic, there's been a massive uptick in like online conferences and virtual meetups, which are all great. And I highly advocate people attend those because I've definitely learned so much from them. I want to say that like my secret sauce that I believe that I'm personally invested in and growth in is like online asynchronous messaging communities like Slack and like Discord. Because those are communities where people from different organizations all come in and conjoin and have discussions about, well, what problems are we currently trying to navigate? How have other leaders and how many, how have other people convened in a very like natural and async casual format? There is a Slack community I'm in called Locally Optimistic. And if you are a leader in the data space or if you're just like growing and want to learn about data, it is amazing. Because there's a channel called Best of LO, LO being locally optimistic, that contains gems of threads of just, hey, like, how do you navigate this? How do you navigate leading a data team? What does it mean to be like the first data hire? What does it mean to be the first engineer? So yeah, my take in terms of like asynchronous online events, like Slack communities, Discord channels, those are amazing. And I'm still also a strong advocate for in-person conferences and meetups. I try to go to one in the Atlanta area once a month or so. I'm no longer trying to get free dinners anymore, nor are people trying to offer me to let them bring back my, their catering dishes. But no, it's great to just meet up with people and have those same discussions of just like, okay, well, what is going on in the community? What is going on in the industry and what's happening and what's changing? 
what other trials and tribulations are we all commonly facing? I also try to go to like a conference like once a quarter and see where it goes. And those just feel so enthralling. Honestly, I love conferences post-pandemic when I did pre because I feel like they have that backbone with those Slack and Discord communities I was talking about in which people have such a strong relationship with the people that they've been talking to in these different communities that's really going to a conference just feels like a family reunion or like just like meeting up with your old college buds or some old coworkers of just, okay, we've already got through the awkward stages. Let us expedite into great, meaningful, constructive conversations off of like what we've been talking about, what you've been experiencing. Yeah. I was having a similar discussion with someone recently that it feels like internet communities have kind of come full circle. Like I remember back when I was learning to code, a lot of the stuff you're describing took place on IRC servers and it kind of transitioned relatively quickly to like social networks, right? Like most of those conversations moved to Twitter or like whatever. And it really seems like now it's Discord and Slack, which is basically just another version of IRC, right? And that people are gravitating towards more intimate communities rather than like open by default communities. Yeah, agree completely. I highly recommend anyone to find a strong online community that they want to be involved in because one of the best ways to learn, one of the best ways to grow is to have a community to grow with. And so, yeah, like definitely try to find your niche, your online community to foster and grow it. Yeah. Cause I mean, we've been talking about it this whole time. It's just like part of my job is fostering a community that can be upskilled that is constantly growing in terms of technical acumen or skill set. And it's also super important to be part of one of those communities too, so that you can also benefit from that growth. Yeah. It's interesting though, because going back to how you got your start going to a lot of meetups and going to traditional college, if you were starting today learning to code, what do you think you would do differently? I would be less afraid. As much as I talk about like the flashes of lightning of just like quick meeting up with mentors or like meeting people at these meetups and learning from them in a 10 to 15 minute conversation, I wish I had more longstanding relationships with some of them, with a lot of them really. And also reached out for more opportunities that I knew were there, but I was just too hesitant or too afraid or felt too much like an imposter to act on. I think if you have the resources and the opportunity to go to like traditional college and like study computer science and like, yeah, definitely go for it. Cause yeah, as the classic 2004 coming of age story, dodgeball says, like, if you can dodge a wrench, you can dodge a ball. And translating that into a computer science degree, I learned how to write a database before I could learn to write a good SQL query. But that gave me so much respect and understanding of like what it meant to write that query because of everything that happened under the hood. So yeah, if you have the resources, traditional college, if I were to do it all again, I would be less afraid, take more of those opportunities and risks, try to like build better like longstanding relationships with people and try to create more of those connections so that maybe I wouldn't write my first SQL query after writing that first database. That is one of the more cogent examples of computer science education versus applied skill that I've heard. I like the dodgeball analogy too. That was good. Awesome. Well, this is a really, really interesting for me. 
I always like to end by asking a couple of questions here. Are there any content creators or like tech educators that you follow these days that you think are doing really fantastic work teaching particular skills? I know you mentioned Quincy Larson earlier, but maybe someone uh, different. There's this guy named Mark Freeman. Love the guy. He's awesome. He's the one who taught me about empathy and understanding your audience and meeting them wherever at. He's been writing for now like a few years now. And I've seen like his content develop and I see like him comment on other content creators, like content about his like philosophy and methodology. His focus is on, I think a recent comment he made was just like, assume that one, no one cares what you're writing about. And two, your problem is to make sure that, or is to give them a reason to care. And so, yeah, like that just also boils down to education. Just like you should be communicating what the problem is and what they're trying to learn, why a solution is important to them, why a problem is important to them, and care about why it should care to them. Which is, yeah, like I mentioned earlier, like the benefits of data. It's just data is so flowing across businesses and organizations. And it's relatively easy to tie it into what is an actual problem that people are trying to solve. That's awesome. Is this Mark Freeman from On The Mark Data? Yes, On The Mark Data. Fantastic. The last question I have for you, I always think it's kind of a fun one. Is there any like aspirational figure that you would love to take to lunch for a couple hours and pick their brain? Like a founder, a scientist, a world figure, someone that you're just like, wow, that person's so cool and I want to hear how they think about the world. It's not a specific person. It is a type of person. It's the people who make actual architecture or paintings out of like Lego. The ones who worked for the Lego Botanical Collection or the Lego Ideas, because like those are the people who take something that is what people literally consider a fundamental building block of just something very like concrete. It's just like, okay, yeah, you build a tower with it. And they're able to like interpret and translate and see like, how do you make something into like an actual physical real thing that like analog that people compare to? Have you seen the Van Gogh one? The Van Gogh yep. Starry Night one is intense because it doesn't directly translate over to the colors that are exactly in the, but like every piece has its own place. And like trying to understand and think like that thought process of what happens in that is just amazing. But also, like, they also have fun with it. Have you known like randomly sneaking frogs into them? The classic frog piece? Yep. It's a good meme. <laughs> That's awesome. I love Lego. I have a couple of Lego sets sitting in the box right now that are on my to-do list to make. So it's definitely been something I've been into since I was a little kid. But yeah, I've never met anyone who's like one of those Lego master builders or anything like that. Uh, no, respect to them for thinking like outside the box and like building something from scratch with like a mental model and how they approach it. Yeah, 100%. Well, thank you so much for the time, Tim. I really appreciate everything you shared. Really enjoyed our conversation. I hope everyone listening had a good listen as well. Definitely subscribe for more of this. We release every week and happy hacking. The State of Developer Education is brought to you by Major League Hacking. To find out more about Major League Hacking and how we're educating the next generation of developers and helping the world's leading companies reach them, visit sponsor.mlh.io. 
And make sure to search for Developer Education in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, or anywhere else you listen, and click like and subscribe so that you don't miss any future episodes. And if you like it, please don't forget to leave a review, and we'll give you a shout out on a future podcast. On behalf of the team here at Major League Hacking, thanks for listening and helping us empower the next generation of technologists. Happy hacking! Thank <laughs> you.